John Funk said, give it to him. I said, if ever not, I go for universal hurt. So I teach my students, go for everybody. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10, where we finally get to the parable of the good Samaritan. Last week, we kind of did a cliffhanger and uh, kind of left you hanging, but it was fun for me, probably not real fun for you. But uh, we're going to be looking at this parable. If you weren't here last week, we looked at the situation which gave rise to Jesus giving the parable. So there was this incident, and we're going to review that in just a second. And then that incident is why Jesus gives the parable. Luke, as we learned, as he's writing about the 70s return and Jesus's words to them, then just kind of switches in verse 25 and says, and a lawyer stood up. And we don't know if it was in this situation or in some other situation. He just stood up, which implies that Jesus was teaching people. Everybody was sitting down and this lawyer pops up to ask Jesus this very good question, which is, you know, how do I get saved? How do I inherit eternal life? Which is pretty much the best question anybody could ever ask. Now, when he does this, Luke gives us a little insight and said he asked him this to put him to the test. And the word that Luke uses is a very strong, intensive word, which tells us, That this lawyer, this expert in the law of Moses is trying to get Jesus, humiliate him, um, discredit him in front of the crowds. And, and as we looked at that, we, we learned uh, some important lessons in that, uh, people can have correct doctrine and even give the right answers and have evil motives. Because when Jesus then defers back to the guy in front of everybody and says, well, you know, you're the expert in the law. You tell me, how does the law read? The guy amazingly says, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. He gives um, the great Shema, (coughs) which is in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We looked at it last week. And then also, um, he also gives the, the command to love your, your, your countrymen, your neighbor as yourself, which is found in Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. So he, he gives the two great commands, which Jesus later on says, uh, rest the whole law and the prophets. I mean, that's a good answer. So he gives the right answer, but he's got these evil motives. And what's happening is, is once he answers that, then Jesus says, well, then go do that. And that is when we begin to see a little crack appear in the, in this man's conscience, because what's happening is, is he's, he must've been feeling a little guilty about his loving his neighbor because he then Luke says, wishing to justify himself plunges Jesus into a whole new problem in an attempt to try and get Jesus and soothe his own conscience where he says, well, and who is my neighbor? Because at that time it was the common uh, thought among most of the Jewish leaders that because Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, 18 says, and you shall not hate your countrymen, but you shall love him. That is um, your own blood relative, your own, uh, fellow Jews is what countrymen means because of that. Then, therefore, they reasoned by inference, well, since you have to love your countrymen, you get to hate your non-countrymen. 
Seems kind of warped, doesn't it? And that was the prevailing Jewish thought. And that is why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, addressing the crowds and the Jewish leaders said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that was the interpretation of the day. Enemy being all non-Jews. Jesus goes on to say, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then goes on to give a bunch of examples to support that thought, that correct interpretation. So the lawyer, wishing to justify himself, thrusts Jesus into this common debate. And and he's probably thinking in his mind, well, if Jesus says uh, we need to love everybody, then he's going to instantaneously put himself at odds with pretty much all the Jewish leaders. And if he says, well, you need to love all Jews, but you can hate other people, then I'll be justified. My conscience will feel good for all the the, the widows I've swindled or whatever. And so that's what's happening right now in front of the people. And this is where we left off last week. Now, before we jump into the parable, I want to just give you some instructions on basic parable interpretation, because a lot of people, when they come to the parables, they don't really know what to do with them. They kind of look at them and yeah, they get the story, but they're saying, so what? How do you get some, you know, spiritual nourishment out of a parable? This is how, um, whenever you study the Bible and you read books on biblical interpretation. I'm sure all of you probably have three or four of those at home. But as you... Oh, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> as you read books on biblical... If you ever tried it, um, you would discover that they talk about interpreting different genres. Now, that is not a term that most of you are probably familiar with, a term you, you even use. But what it means is genre is a literary type. For instance, you have parables. You have narrative. You have Old Testament narrative and prophecy. These are different kinds of genres or narratives. Now, whenever you're reading books on interpretation, they give you the general rules that apply to every kind of literary type or genre. But they also tell you in this specific kind of genre or literary type, that you find in the Bible, it's helpful to approach them in this way. Well, the parables are just one such type, and they're really um, great teachers of spiritual truth as long as you interpret them correctly. And so let me just give you a little crash course in interpreting parables, and then as we go through the parable of the Good Samaritan, you will see that it is like the textbook case parable. It's easy to interpret, and you'll see almost all of these key things in there, and you'll see why it's important to look at them as we go through. But the, the first thing, for instance, we, when we come to a parable, we, we ask ourselves this. What is the situation or need which led to the parable being given? Now, what happened in the, the preceding context which caused Jesus to give the parable? And we know that because we spent all last Sunday on it. Um, who is my neighbor? Okay, and then right after that flows the parable. Secondly, um, you want to look for any cultural issues. Now, what I mean by that is you look at things in the text which the people who are listening to the parable for the first time would have clearly understood in a very clear way, but we might not understand. For instance, maybe it talks about Jewish weddings. Well, if you don't know about Jewish weddings, you need to read up on that. Maybe it talks about, you know, farming. And if you don't understand about farming, you need to 
understand that so you read up on that in our parable today we're going to have a mention of levites a mention of priests a mention of some geographical stuff as you will see um we have quite a few little things the uh, samaritan is mentioned if you don't know that these are things which the people who heard the parable would instantly understand but if you don't instantly understand that as they would instantly understand that then you need to get to that place and then a lot of times the just the interpretation just leaps out at you it's like ah but if you don't then often you're in a fog because you're thinking what 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 is this about because you don't understand what they understood okay so you do a little cultural issues third you identify the details and interpret them properly and what this means is every parable has a detail. There's people and things in the parable. And so you need to learn how to identify those details and interpret them properly. In some parables, like in the parable of the soils, almost every detail has a secondary meaning, right? There's the seed, which is the word of God, the field, which is the world, you know, the son of man who's sowing the seed. There are the different soils, which represent the different um, hearts and the different responses with the different heart responses. And you know, I mean, pretty much everything has a, a secondary spiritual meaning. But remember that parables are different from an allegory. An allegory is what is called an extended metaphor. A metaphor is something like, I am the bread of life. Or I am the door. And Jesus is not a loaf of bread. He's not a slab of wood. See, he's that is a metaphor. And when you string them together into a coherent story, like in Daniel, where you have the tree that springs up and, you know, all the beasts are living in their branches and then it's cut down and the iron bands put around it and then it sprouts back up. And that is an allegory. Or when you're reading in Revelation, there's a beast with 10 heads and you know, or there's seven heads and 10 horns, you know, allegory, not true to life. Okay, parable is a true to life story and some of the details will have secondary spiritual meaning. So, you know, when you go to the parable, you have to say, well, is the fatted calf in the parable of the prodigal son, the crucified Lord? No, um, it's a fatted calf. Um, it's the oil in the parable of the ten virgins, the Holy Spirit. No, um, but you see, sometimes people overinterpret those. And when you do that, what happens is you obscure the meaning of the parable. And the reason people usually overinterpret is because they don't determine the situation or need. Now, if the parable has it appears in another gospel, it's really good, fourthly, to check that out and to see if there's any goodies you can get from another occurrence. Unfortunately, ours does not this morning. And fifth and finally, you look at the punchline of the parable, which always appears at the end or towards the very end of the parable at, or at the very end. And when you look at the punchline, the punchline needs to match up with the situation or need for the parable being given. Now, if you get to the punchline, you say the punchline teaches this spiritual truth. And then you look at your situation of need and they don't match up. You either got your situation of need wrong. You got your punchline wrong, but they got to line up. 
Now, once you line them up, then oftentimes the details can be interpreted properly and you'll see how they do that. So that's basically the overview of how you interpret a parable. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to look at Luke chapter 10. I'm going to go ahead and read the situation that gave rise to the parable starting in verse 25. And then we're going to examine in more detail verses 30 through 37. So if you have your Bibles, you can you can watch. And then as I read through this, as you follow along, see if you can I see the need again again, cultural issues. You can see, you know, details that represent spiritual truths and the punchline. See if you can see those. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength. And with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him. And went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, fell into robbers hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now, from this parable, I'm going to ask you four questions, four questions, which are going to drive you to one of two conclusions. You're either loving your neighbor or not, and hopefully it will move you and motivate you to respond correctly to those in need around you. The first question we want to answer is, do you see people in need? Look at verse 30. Jesus replied and said, remember that Jesus is replying to the question, who is my neighbor in the near context of verse 29? That's the situation or need. And look at the middle of verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We'll stop there. Here's one of the instances where everybody listening to this parable would instantly go, oh, too bad. And you're thinking, well, why is that? Well, let me tell you, because Jericho is located just just right up, pretty much just slightly north of the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is 1300 feet below sea level. It's the lowest place on Earth, unless, you know, you go to the ocean and go to one of those big trenches in the bottom of the ocean. It's the lowest place on Earth. Now, do you know when you drive up into a mountain, how as you gain elevation, it gets colder and colder? Well, when you go down, it gets hotter and hotter. 
Death Valley is 300 feet below sea level. And the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. I remember when I was there in May in the spring when it's cool. We got into our little air-conditioned buses in Jerusalem, drove down to Jericho, and stepped out into 116-degree weather. It wasn't cool like it's been here lately. (laughs) Jerusalem is built on top of a mountain. It is 2,500 feet above sea level. So if you travel from Jerusalem to Jericho, 3,800 feet. Feet, you descend, if you go as a crow flies, it's about 14 miles, about 17 or 18 miles if you take the road. So it's a down thing. Now, what happens is, is as you get to about sea level, the vegetation starts disappearing. And from then on down, the last, you know, 1,300 feet descent, it's just dry and parched. It is, it's nasty. I mean, it's not... Like between, you know, around Mojave or something, it's really nasty. It's just rocks. I mean, there's no water because as you look at the topography, there are the, 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 the mountains of Jerusalem and then it descends down into what is called the, the, the Jordan Rift and that's where the Dead Sea is. So it's very hot and arid, hilly, dry rocks and just basically nothing's there. Now, because of that, if you were traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, it wasn't too bad. You could do it pretty easy in a day because it's all downhill. But you'd want to make sure you started early and you got the journey over because you wouldn't ever want to spend the night on that road. Because there's no water, nothing to eat, no shelter, no one lived there because it was what was called the wilderness. Now, if you were going the other direction from Jericho to Jerusalem, it would even be worse because you'd have to start real early because you're going uphill the whole way through some very hot, arid country. So that is what Jesus means when he says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and everybody would instantly say, oh, man, that's a bad trek. Hot, dry, nasty, you know, 17 mile journey. Now, since it was a wilderness and no one lived there and there wasn't a bunch of shops along the way it was a perfect place to be ambushed by robbers and a lot of people were ambushed by robbers and that's why people often traveled in packs so everybody knew that and look at the middle of verse 30 where the text tells us the man fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead jesus paints a picture of a man who is in a serious Serious state of need. I mean, think about it. The man has no water, but is in a very hot place, climate, desert. Secondly, the man has serious physical injuries. The text says they beat him and left him half dead, which means he's so injured, he can't even walk to get himself out of the situation. Third, the man has no transportation even if he did they stole it from him for the man is laying in the hot sun without sunscreen without clothing and the sun is baking him and burning him he's just laying on the dirt and the rocks alongside the road And five, because of his predicament, he's going to die if he doesn't get help soon. So, you know, you can hardly get in more need than that. 
Now, when you and I are out and about in the world, we usually don't come across people like that unless we're firemen, policemen, or, you know, work at a hospital. Um, you just don't come along people like that. But we do come along people with all sorts of needs. We have people in our world who are in varying degrees of need. But in the New Testament, when you look at the word need, it usually refers to something that is absolutely necessary, something you need to survive. So we're not talking about cars, air conditioning, more than one set of clothing, um, you know, varieties of foods, things like that, which Americans all think they need, but don't. We're talking about those things you absolutely must have or you will die. Now, in our country, we live in what is called a welfare state. So we give a lot. We pay a lot of money to help people who are in need. I mean, you could be an illegal alien, you know, break the law, sneak across the border, get hurt, and we'll feed you and put you in the hospital and give you free medical treatment and then ship you back. No, we're, we're nice to people. We, that's the great, one of the great things about our country is we are, we spend a lot of money helping people in need. And so in our country, you usually don't run into people who are in life threatening situations where no one will help them. You just have to find, you know, call the police and they come and fix it, you know, or the, the ambulance or whatever. There are people though all around us who have eternally life threatening need, aren't there? Who don't know Jesus. These are the people who are all around us. We work with them. We're driving next to them. We see them at the store. They're in the parking lot. You know, they're just everywhere we go. And they are in an eternally life-threatening situation because they don't know Christ. And once they come to Christ, they still have need to be trained and equipped with the word of God. Even if they don't realize it, they need these things more, the Bible says, than their necessary food. Because they can't live on bread alone, but everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So because of this, the spiritual needs around us and the, and the responsibilities God places on you as a member of a local church, you need to be seeing these needs. Again, these needs are things that you see and assess so you can render assistance or aid. And so the question is, is do you see them? You know, sometimes we kind of just walk with blinders on that. Um, I was... Uh, someplace yesterday and we were uh i was needing some assistance and so i was trying there was salespeople all around me but none of them would look you in the look at me in the face you know how that is you know they're all kind of real busy and they know that if they stop and they make eye contact with you then they're gonna have to what help you but they're helping other people so i'm you know swarmed with workers but i can't get my need met well that's how some people come to church they kind of come to the church. They got the little blinders on. I'm going to church, 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 church. Um, hi, hi, how are you doing? How are you doing? And they just kind of, you know, got their head down. They're going for their pew. And they're not entering into the church. They're not driving to church thinking, okay, how am I going to minister to people? How am I going to serve people? How am I going to be a blessing to people? Am I going to invite somebody over to lunch afterwards or out to lunch or, you know, how, how, what am I going to do and have the mindset? I am coming to the assembly of believers to be a blessing to them because God has given me resources to be a blessing to them. And I'm coming to be a blessing to them. Or do you come saying, they better have that AC fixed. Hope nobody's sitting in my pew. 
the sermon better be good. And I hope they play the songs I like. See, a lot of times we come and we have that mindset, don't we? Well, we're thinking about us, me and my, but we aren't thinking about they, them and theirs. And so we need to switch that around. And when we enter in, we need to see the needs, assess people for needs, saying, then that person is standing by themselves. They kind of got a frown on their face. Obviously, they're not too happy. I'm going to go over there and talk to them, encourage them, see if I can get to know them, be a blessing to them. And that is how the church is to work. And the degree to which the church has other focus is the degree to which it is most like heaven. But to the degree that people are looking at themselves is the degree that it is most like hell. And so what happens is, is in the church, if you have a group of people and the people are, you know, 20% of the people are serving, looking, trying to minister, and the rest are sucking, absorbing, and receiving, then that church is not going to be anywhere near what Christ would want it to be. Because most of the people are selfish. They aren't serving. They aren't giving. They're coming to receive and get and leave. They're like the leech who has two sisters, give and give. James says in James 2.20, pure and undefiled religion, the sight of God, of our God and Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And here, notice that pure religion, undefiled religion is to be looking out for these people in need. Now, in that culture, there was no welfare state. You know, if people didn't help you, you starved. And so the Christians, especially in that culture, had to keep their eye out for people who were in distress so that they could help them. As part of the local body, God wants you, he wants me to be looking out, using our spiritual gifts, serving, being a blessing to others. It's just how the church is to work. I mean, it's pretty scary when you think about um, what Jesus said in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, verses 41 through 45. He said this. These are scary words. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That's not good. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in naked. You did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will answer, Lord, why did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Out. And what he's talking about these, if you look at the the account, he speaks of these talking about these brothers of mine. He's talking about fellow believers. You remember when we were in, in, you know, Luke nine, if you were born then, Um, if you you remember we were in Luke nine, we went to the place where where Jesus says you're going to go into the town and you're going to offer the gospel to them. But if they don't receive you and extend hospitality on you, you know, woe, judgment, and hell. Remember that? The same thing is happening here. These people are the people who went out on behalf of the Lord, 
doing the Lord's work. Some of them were cast into prison for preaching the gospel. They're doing good, and these people did not receive these fellow believers who were there to do them good and give them spiritual help. And Jesus judges them. Same thing in Luke 9. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Well, that is just everything in a nutshell, isn't it? It implies that you see the need, you have the power to fulfill the need, and then you do it. Again, we're talking about needs here. And I think this is kind of a, um, a confusion sometimes in our society. And you see the guy who's on the sidewalk and he's begging and will work for food and he's half drunk or whatever. That guy is in spiritual need. He's not in physical need. Um, you know, I'm a veteran or whatever. If you're a veteran, they'll give you free education. They'll take care of you. I mean, you know, medical treatment. Um, those people need to work. And the scriptures address that um, quite clearly. We're talking about people who, because of circumstances or whatever, get themselves in either severe physical need. But apart from that, more commonly in our country, people in spiritual need. People who in spiritual need. Galatians 6.10, Paul says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those of the household of faith, which is to be our priority. Well, you are to take care of each other. As a priority, do you know why? Because you're brothers and sisters in Christ, because you're going to spend eternity together. That's why. So you give priorities to believers. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Paul says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I mean, that's an interesting phrase, worse than an unbeliever. The guy's just below a pagan. If you won't take care of those of his own household, and believe me, this is your household. This is your body. This is your family. And we need to take care of each other. When I was pastoring in Idaho, I remember this. um, We got a little call from the guy who paid the bills, and he said, well, I got some good news for you. And we said, well, what's that? He said, some guy called up no somebody called up we just thought it was a guy so somebody called up and said that they would pay for any books that any of the pastors would want to buy and i said really (laughs) i mean hey my name is jack hughes i have a problem i love books (laughs) yeah you know it's like really so you know, it was good for a guy, you know, uh, building his library. And so, you know, we tried him out a few times. Oh, get one little book here, one little there. Okay, we'll try and get something heavy duty and see what happens. And the guy just paid. That was a blessing. I never knew who it is. We called him the book genie. Um, and uh, I've seen people give cars anonymously and computers and gift certificates and large sums of monies and things and help there's one guy who had cancer he was in the middle of building his house and believe me by the time he got out of the hospital his house was completely finished and people just they just served the guy 
And you know what? This is how the body of Christ is to take care of it. you. You look for other people. You take care of other people. You have your gifts. You have your resources. You have your time. You you do it. And so sometimes it's just helping someone move or fixing their car, or doing some little project for them or just encouraging note or praying for them or whatever. But I ask you, are you seeing the need? Because they're all around you, both within the church and outside the church. Secondly, do you pass by the person in need? Look at verse 31. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. Now, if you don't know what a priest is, you need to know they were kind of like the pastors of Judaism. They instructed people in the law of God. They helped intercede for the people on behalf of God. These were the godly people, the spiritual people, the people who were really close and, you know, examples. And so, praise God. Here comes a priest. I'm saved. Look at the middle of verse 31. And when he, the priest, saw him, the naked, beat up, half dead man lying in the dust of the road, he passed by on the other side. Oh. I mean, you think about what it would be like if you came upon, you know, you're hiking in the little hills of Burbank or whatever, and all of a sudden you come upon, oh, what do you do? And was the man dead? Well, he's obviously beat up bad. There's dried blood smeared all over him. Do you know? Should I touch him? He doesn't have any clothes on. He's sunburned really bad. There's flies on him. And maybe he's moaning. Maybe you can see him breathing. Maybe he's kind of coughing or whatever. Maybe he hears you coming and he's so weak. All he can do is kind of lift up a hand and go, uh, to let you know he's not dead. Would you pass by? Would you pass by? And just say, I'm not getting involved in this. Look at verse 32. Likewise, a Levite also. Oh, praise God. The Levites, the Lord was their inheritance. And so they were taken care of by the other cities. They were there. Their whole lives were dedicated to serving other people in the temple. They were the the servants of God. So, (laughs) Another godly person dedicated to service. He's come along. I mean, this is like, you know, the tow truck of your car breaks down, just showing up at the right time. Look at the middle of verse 32. And when he, the Levite, came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Jesus purposely takes the two most respected slash godly people in society and says, these two people went by and didn't help the guy. And you know why? Why didn't they help the guy? Well, for the same kind of reasons, we don't help people who are in need. That's why. I mean, you know, if they stop and help the guy, they may not get out of the wilderness before nightfall. They'd have to spend the night with this guy who's all beat up and bloody and whatever, naked. It just isn't good. And besides, there are obviously robbers in the area, and I don't want to get robbed. And besides, uh, I'm only carrying a small amount of water and provisions, and if I gave these to that man, then I would suffer. And besides, if they, I gave the man my, my, my outer garment so that he wouldn't get burnt, I'd get burnt. And besides, I don't even know what kind of man this is. I mean, he could be a Gentile. He could be unclean. He could be a Jew hater. 
And besides, the man may die anyways, and I'd have to go through all that hassle, and he might just die anyways. And what good would it do? I mean, he's half dead already. And besides, God is sovereign and wouldn't have let this happen to the guy. He obviously deserved it. God brought this upon him for a reason. He's probably getting what he deserves. And man, I'm telling you, we are so selfish and so wicked. We could just churn up a whole truckload of excuses why we can't help people. But what would you do? Would you pass by? Or have you been passing by? You know, okay, Christians have spiritual gifts. I need to be exercising my spiritual gift. Am I doing that anywhere for the church, this church, or the church at large? Um, I know I need to be giving. Am I giving? Or are you passing by? You're passing by. Let somebody else, let somebody else, let somebody else. You're just like the Levite. You're just like the priest in the parable. You're passing by. Again, I'm not talking about the, you know, giving to the sung young moon guy who shows up and he's a college student looking for our help going to college and you give money to that guy to support the cult. I'm talking about people with legitimate spiritual needs and physical needs and emotional needs. Are you passing by when you look at your life? Is that the pattern of your life or not? Or third question, do you stop and help? The person in need. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan. Now you just need to stop there. We might read this in our American mindset. And just say it nonchalantly. Ah, The Samaritan. Whoever those are. Probably another ancient biblical group. And continue on. But believe me. When the crowd is sitting there. And Jesus is sitting teaching them. And the lawyer is standing up in the midst. And Jesus says. But a Samaritan, it was like Jesus took out a dagger and like, wah, and stabbed the guy right in the chest. You go, well, why is that? Well, let me tell you. Do you remember, do you remember in the end of Mark when disciples are going through and they're rejected at, at a Samaritan village because the Samaritans won't offer hospitality to them? And James and John say, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them? Now, why, why, why? They had been rejected by a lot of other people, but they only said that to the Samaritans. Why? Because they hated them. They hated them. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well? And he says, yeah, give me a drink. And you remember what the woman said? How is it? That you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. And then John puts in parentheses so we kind of understand what's going on. For Jews, he says, have no dealings with Samaritans. Period. It was shocking. The woman was like, whoa. This is radical. And do you remember when Jesus in John chapter 8 was exposing the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders? And in verse 48, the Jewish leaders are so mad because they're trying to, they, they can't out-argue him. I mean, the guy's God. Um, they're, 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 they're so flustered, they decided to do some name-calling. 
So they say, do we not say that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Those are the two worst things they could call him. Worst thing number one, you are Samaritan. Think about that. It was the ultimate slam. And so what was the deal? What is the deal between the Samaritans and the Jews? Well, this is the deal. It started way back when after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided into two kingdoms. There was Judah in the south and the ten tribes of Israel in the north. Jeroboam became the ruler and he instantly adopted a very wicked and half-pagan, mongrel version of Judaism in those ten northern tribes. And the ten northern tribes never had a single good king. They always were pagan in their worship. And finally, in 722, at the judgment of God, the king of Assyria came down, he conquered them, and dispersed the, 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 the Jews. It's called the dispersal. The, the, the dispersia. They, they, they just were spread out all over the place. And that's what conquerors would do. They'd come into a land or to humiliate the people. They'd take them captive and spread them out and drop them off in other cities and say, you live here. But the kings would also know that, you know, you just can't go into a land and... Abandon it because then it becomes desolate and overgrown by wild beasts and it loses its value. So what you do then is you import new people into the land and those new people then keep the vineyards and the orchards and the crops and the houses and the irrigation canals running so that the the country works good and produces things and that's good for your country since you're now ruling it. Well, that's what happened in 722 BC. Well... When the Assyrians brought these groups from other places back, they kind of mixed in and made an even more pagan, mongrel, parcel Jews because there was a few Jews still living in the land, so they were partly Jew and a lot of parts of other things, just kind of big mixed group of slightly Jewish, lot of paganism stuff. Those were the Samaritans. God protected Judah, the kingdom in the south, for a few more years. And in 605 B.C., the Chaldeans, ruled by Nebuchadnezzar, are now in control. They've beat up the Assyrians. They've beat up the Egyptians. And now Nebuchadnezzar comes to conquer Jerusalem in 605. And in three deportations, he takes away first the nobles and the, the you know, officials, and then all the skilled people, then all the commoners and laborers he takes in these three deportations and leaves Jerusalem desolate, burns it, Knocks everything down and doesn't even bring people back in. But some people have escaped and the lame and the drunks and the outcasts were left behind. Those people then intermixed with the Samaritans. And that there was just a few of them and they were in the land. Well, after the 70 year Babylonian captivity, when Cyrus says to the Jews, you can go back and they go back now. They're going to rebuild the walls and the temple and who shows up? But the Samaritans, you remember, um, Sanballat and Tobias and the like. And they're like, hey, you know, we want, we're, we're partly Jew. We want to help you out. And it's like, no, no, no. You cannot help us out because you're pagan. You're not full Jew and you can't prove it, prove your Jewish heritage. And so they go, okay. And that was the beginning of the war. So then the Samaritans then put a lot of pressure, wrote a bunch of letters, threatened, you know, all this stuff in order to try and get the Jews 
to stop rebuilding Jerusalem just out of spite and anger. So the Jews were then mad at the Samaritans. The Samaritans were mad at the Jews. Well, after a while, what happened was, is Alexander the Great came into power, conquered the whole, you know, known world, all that area. And he began to what is called Hellenize um, the known world. He brought in Greek and he brought in um, Greek idolatry. Now, the Samaritans, who at that time had a temple built on Mount Gerizim, wanted to have favor with the Greek rulers. And so they volunteered to have their temple dedicated to Zeus. Well, this didn't go well with the Jews. I mean, not only were they mongrel Jews, now they're Greek worshiping mongrel Jews. And so later on, in 167 BC, there was this famous revolt called the Maccabean Revolt, where John Hyrcanus came and conquered that area, and he knocked down and destroyed the temple at Mount Gerizim, which made the Samaritans mad at the Jews. So... What happened was, is then moving on towards right before the time of Jesus, there was another ruler. This was Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was an incredible builder. He, he was one of the most, the master builder of all time. Just incredible building genius. He loved to build. He also fancied himself as the king of the Jews. The Jews didn't like him because really he was a Hasmonean. And he was forced to convert to Judaism. And so he was like the third generation of, you know, uncommitted Jews. And they didn't really like him because he wasn't fully Jew. And they just didn't like him. Well, Herod wants to kind of build some political alliances in favor with the Jews and the Samaritans. So he's rebuilding the Jewish temple, which, you know, took 46 years to build. And then he also approaches the Samaritan and says, hey, how about I rebuild your temple on Mount Gerizim. Well, because Herod is partially Jew and the Samaritans hate the Jews, they say, okay. And so he does. And then they never step foot in it. They keep worshiping and they're all beat up one just to spite Herod because he was partly Jew. The Jews then are mad at Herod because he would build a temple on the wrong mountain to people who are pagans. And they're mad at the Jews because they thought, oh, you could help us do our own temple. We don't need you. Now, later on in 6 AD and 9 AD, on two separate occasions, a couple Samaritans got this idea. It was very dastardly. They thought, okay, the Jews have to obey the law. And in the law, it says that if you get touch a dead person or get people bones on anything it's unclean for seven days so let's sneak in there right before one of the pilgrim feasts when all the jews have traveled all over the mediterranean base and made these huge journeys and just when they come for those special feasts to worship in the temple we'll spread human bones at night all around the temple courtyard and no one will be able to worship that year and they did it twice And so you can imagine the Jews hated the Samaritans and they hated the Jews. They were just, they just were in a rage at each other. Just the name of it was just, ah, okay. You got to know that. You got to know that. Look at the middle of verse 33. So 
but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And Jesus is looking at the lawyer on the face and says, but a Samaritan came and felt compassion on the guy. Public enemy number one. Then oh. you can just see, you know, the, the lawyers are kind of with clenched jaw. Then everybody's looking. See, it's trying to be cool. Look at verse 34. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds and pouring oil and wine on them. And he went, uh, he put him on his own beast and brought him in the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him the innkeeper and said, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will pay you. The Samaritan one feels compassion on the guy. Secondly, he applies first aid. Third, he allows the robbed men to ride in his animal. He walks. Uh, fourth, he, he, uh, brings the man to an inn because he's just on a journey. He doesn't even live in the area. Can he bring him to his house? And he brings that in to be fed and cared for. Five, he pays for it all. And then he has some business to attend to. So he tells the innkeeper, listen, you just keep taking care of him. When I come back, I'll pay you. And you know, that as Jesus is saying all this, the lawyer is certainly churning within. Because the bad guy The ultimate bad guy is being nice to the guy who was beat up. And Jesus is just twisting the blade now. And God wants you and I to learn from these things. To stop and help those who are in need. Whether it be sharing the gospel with them or encouraging them or whatevering them to help those in need. And if you look at your life and you realize, you know, I'm not that person. I can't even remember when I've helped somebody last time. I mean, at the office, I gave somebody one of my pencils. And you just don't see it in your life. I'm telling you, you need to ask yourself if the love of Christ is really in you. Think of the person who shared the gospel with you. Aren't you glad they did? The person who discipled you, the person who taught you, the persons who have encouraged you. Aren't you glad they did? You remember what Jesus said in Matthew seven twelve, and everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Both the two great commandments are summed up in what we often refer to as the golden rule. Do you want people to do good to you, serve you, train you, help you physically and spiritually? I know you do. Well, then are you doing it to others? And it's amazing to me when people can come into a church week after week and not serve and not give. And just leave, just scoot out the back and never say, I'm going to serve in this ministry or give faithfully. And and that isn't Christianity. That is self-deception. Then there are those faithful people who come to church every week who get involved in ministries and often more ministries than they should be involved in. And then they're feeling guilty about the the ministries they could be involved in but can't because they're too committed to serving people in other areas and they're walking by and saying, oh, there's a person in need. Oh, Lord, I can't help them because I'm going to serve other people. But they shoot up a little arrow prayer for them. And when you talk to those people and you say, you know, I know you've been serving here for a long time. You know, maybe we could get somebody to kind of relieve you. They look at you and say, what? 
Or leave me on what? Well, you know, I mean, you've been doing this ministry for a while. Don't you kind of, you know, I love doing this ministry. Well, don't you take up? No. Well, you could take a no. But a rest? No. Man, they want to serve Jesus. I love serving Jesus. I love doing my ministry. That is how Christians feel. The non-Christian can come in and he's just concerned about getting what he wants. We can slip out the back jack. James says in James 2, 14 through 17, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. So if you say, I have faith, I believe in Jesus, and there is no desire to see needs and serve those needs, you have a dead faith, is what the scriptures say. It's an indication you're lost and you're perishing. You're sucked into self-worship, or at best, you're a believer who's severely tangled in sin. It's got to be one or the other. In a body this size, there's so many needs. There are so many needs that could be met. There's so many more ministries we could do. There's so many things just waiting, waiting for somebody to step forward and say, I'll do it. And you need to perform your function and serve others. And it may be in a little way, it may be a big way, it may be in a public way, it may be an obscure way, but you need to do it. On a faithful, regular basis. Outside in the world, you, you may not encounter people who are, you know, beat up alongside the road, but you're going to encounter people with serious spiritual need. And when that happens, you know, get out the bomb. Get out the bomb. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about what God has done in your life. Make sure they know the truth. And when you look at your life, you see no service, no giving, no gospel sharing, no habit of meeting needs and you're just a passerby christian then you need to come to jesus because when a spirit the holy spirit enters into a person's life upon salvation it makes you want to serve others john 13 35 jesus says by this all men will know that you are my disciples if You have love for one another. And of course, love is just a huge list of actions, right? A sense of otherness, looking for others' needs so you can meet them. John says in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. 1 John 4, 20, he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And there's just a ton of other verses we could go into. Don't buy into the lie that if I give, if I serve, I'm going to be cheated. I'm, I, I'm going to be rooked. I'm going to be robbed from. It's going to be a waste. No. Jesus said in Acts chapter 19, verses 34 and 35, it is more blessed to what? Give than receive. And you just got to trust Jesus about it. Being a Christian is living in this paradoxical realm of, okay, if I lose my life, I gain it. 
If I become the servant of all, I become the greatest. The more I give, the more I get. And that's how it works with God. And he never fails. He wants to bless you. It's more blessed to give than receive. But maybe you just need to come to Christ and get saved for real this morning. Now, maybe you've always called yourself a Christian. You've come to church fairly regularly. You know quite a bit about the Bible, but you look at your life. You you just pass by. You have no desire to serve people, be a help to people, watch for people. You don't share your faith. You can't even remember the last time you shared your faith with somebody. And you just need to humble yourself and see yourself as the hopeless, helpless, wretched sinner that all Christians, before they get saved, realize they are. To realize that Jesus is the only answer. That you need to turn from your sin, your worship of self. You need to die to yourself. You need to take up your cross. And you need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And trust in his death on the cross and his resurrection to save you. And only that and not keep deluding yourself. Why know these facts? I'm not talking about knowing these facts. I'm talking about trusting in these facts and following Jesus instead of you. Letting Jesus rule your life instead of you. Or maybe you already know Christ. And you've made many excuses not to serve. And you've made many excuses to pass by. And you just need to confess those. And God is faithful. He'll forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But don't just confess them. Repent of your old ways and turn to the way you know God wants you to be. Finally, do you know who your neighbor is? Now we come to the punchline of the parable, which clearly addresses the situation or need that gave rise to the parable. Remember, the lawyer wishing to justify himself, said, and who is my neighbor? Look at verses 36 and 37. Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers or fell into the robber's hands? And he, the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. Now notice, he can't even say the word Samaritan. You know, he uses the the obscure term. It's like, you know, people who are mad at each other and couples, you know, say, well, that man, that woman, you know, they don't even have a name. They don't even have an identity. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. So he says, the one, the one who showed mercy. And this is so brilliant because the guy's first out to get Jesus. And now Jesus has made the man, brought him to the place where the man then asks another question so that Jesus will be put at odds against all the religious establishment. And now with everybody looking, has made that person at odds with the establishment. He just confessed before the crowd. You got to be like the Samaritan. Oh, I look at the end of verse 39, and then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. In other words, go act like the Samaritan in the parable. Owie. So we need to volunteer to be inconvenienced. 
sacrifice time and energy and resources and money for especially those in the household of God and those outside. The greatest needs outside are spiritual. The greatest needs inside are spiritual. But you got to be looking for them. Are you looking and seeing people in need? Are you passing by? If you are, you need to confess and repent of that. Are you helping other people? Is that the habit of your life? And do you know that all humanity is your neighbor and you are to love them like yourself? It's a good parable. Is that fun or what? All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We just thank you for this parable. It is so clear and really such a punch in the gut to people who are sinners like ourselves. Father, we all have passed by at times for whatever selfish reason or excuse. And Father, we know that it didn't pass with you. Father, we do pray that we would be like the Samaritan in the parable, that we would be looking for needs, that we would see those needs, that we would help to meet those needs, and we'd constantly remind ourselves that all humanity are our neighbors, even our enemies. And Father, we know that you give grace to help us love others, so help us to do that in a way that would please you. Father, for those here who realize they don't know you, who just are lost and They've never seen a transformed life. They've just called themselves Christians and lived for themselves. I pray that you would grant them repentance, that they would cry out, confessing their sins, saying, Lord, help me to turn from my sin and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. For the rest of us who maybe have not made it a habit to serve others and meet those needs, may we confess our sin to you, that Calvary Bible Church might become a great light a great tool in your hand to impact society and to impact the lives of those who meet here in this local body of believers. May this be true of us, that you might receive all the glory and honor and praise. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.